Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. Today we're going to talk about something that we never talk about, but we probably should. This episode is one that I've had in my pocket, and I wanted to hold it till the right time. In the last week, I've had to change several things just to keep it accurate, because things are changing so quickly. So today, I'd like to talk to you about money. When I entered practice, I knew there were things I needed to know and do if I wanted to make money. What I didn't know is what I would need to learn and do if I wanted to keep the money I earned. We all get to choose our own path when it comes to how we make the money. But there are some timeless principles that are universal if we want to keep the money. The reason why I want to do this now is because with all the money printing and policy changes that have taken place in the last three months, things are about to change and the effects will be felt in every country. So without any further ado, let's talk about money. Money. We all know we need it, and students are certainly forced to spend it even before they earn it, meaning we all start in a hole and have to dig our way out. But we rarely talk about how to make it, and we never talk about how to keep it. So let me set a little context before we dive into this. First off, please don't take anything I'm about to say as specific financial advice. I merely want to open your eyes to some possibilities that are out there. I do not claim to be an expert at all, but I do study these things daily for my own financial decisions and to prepare for the future. My goal for today is just to get your mind thinking and to hopefully pique your interest so you'll start doing your own research to develop a strategy that will help you to preserve your wealth that you've worked so hard and sacrificed so much to get. I'm also not going to discuss specifically what you should do because even the macroeconomists can't agree on those details. Certainly I have opinions that guide my family's investment strategy, but today we're going to talk primarily fundamentals and principles, not forecasting or speculating. The first patient I ever had was a man who delivered my x-ray machine. After seeing him a few times, he gave me a book. It was Robert Kiyosaki's book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Of course I read it, and it permanently altered the way I thought about money. It also got me thinking about money in ways I had never considered before. That was the beginning of a journey to discover different asset classes and sacrificing materialism for the sake of wealth creation. That was 20 years ago, and today I own or have owned a little bit of everything. So today I just want to give you a little understanding into how these things work. But they also come with warnings because I want people to be educated so they don't get fooled and lose their money. So let's start off at the beginning, and that means making money. The first principle is that gross income is good for your ego, but net income is good for your future. I once sat at a dental seminar where the audience was asked about gross and net income. It was discovered that one doctor there had an office that was grossing $2.5 million per year, but their net income was less than $250,000. The speaker told them that he felt bad for them because he knew how much work was required to gross $2.5 million, but he knew from experience that he could net $250,000 doing half as much work. This is the trap that we often fall into, because we allow our decision-making to be driven by the desire for more gross income. It wasn't until my third office that I finally built an office that was designed to drive net income. Oh, I'm a slow learner sometimes. My second office, however, was built to drive gross income. It was a 3,200-square-foot office designed to see high volume, with other services, including massage therapy and acupuncture. That office easily doubled my gross income, but nearly eliminated my net income. And that was when I had an epiphany. The big, high-grossing office that demands constant income from any source possible, that means the addition of modalities and the need to justify their congruency with the chiropractic principle, even though we know they are incongruent and unnecessary, is one that I call the ego-driven practice, because I had one, and I know that's what it is. 
My last office is the smallest one I've ever had, so it's built for efficiency. In that office, I could make enough money to cover the monthly overhead by working one day. Every day after that was profit. I know that's extreme, but you can start to think of it as how long you have to work each month before you start to feed your family. So let's do the math. Calculate your monthly overhead and divide it by the price of an adjustment. That's the number of adjustments you need to do to break even. How long does it take you to do that? How many adjustments is it? Or calculate your monthly overhead, divide it by your daily income, and that's how much you have to work before you make a profit. Personally, I would never do it if I have to work more than a week to pay my overhead. Some people won't mind working two weeks for overhead if the gross number is high enough, but that's not me. If you're a student, then this is also a helpful exercise for forecasting where your future practice should be. Calculate your monthly costs, including rent, loan, utilities, equipment leases, and anything else you might add. If I want to pay overhead in a week, then take that number, multiply it times four, and then divide it by the cost of an adjustment. That will tell you how many visits you need per month to hit your target. Now take that number and divide it by the number of days you plan to work in a month, and now you have your daily target. Is it doable? Since we mentioned price, let's go there for a second. When I was still a student, I read two of Joseph Strauss's books. In them, he proudly talks about his box on the wall. This is the concept of putting a box on the wall and allowing the patient to pay what they can afford or what they think the adjustment was worth. Idealistically, this appealed to me, and I very much considered doing it. But there was a nagging thought in my mind that just couldn't let me go through with it. I eventually realized that its appeal was really that it allowed me to hide my fear and ignorance of money. Once I knew this, I had to go a different way. So then I started with care plans. Again, I was doing this because I was afraid to ask people for money on every visit, because I wasn't sure that every visit would be worth the money. As I did these care plans, I came to the conclusion that they were holding me back and making me a worse doctor. Prepayment gave the patient leverage and expectations, which led to them making demands that I knew were not in their best interest. Now I have to decide if I'm going to take a half an hour to explain why it's a bad idea, on discounted time, mind you, or am I going to do it so I can move on? This eventually led to me abandoning the care plans and simply charging a set fee for every visit. I highlight that path to point out that my early decisions were guided by my fear and ignorance of money. One of the ways I got over that was by doing math. So let's do some math and see how this works. Dr. Gonstead used to charge $5 a visit during the 1960s. A few years ago, I looked this up and it was equal to about $38. I first put this episode together about two months ago and $5 from 1960 was worth $41.76. Well, I just looked it up again today, and it was equal to $44.30. That increase of nearly $2 in just a month or so highlights a huge problem we're going to talk about in just a second. But first, let's look at what this increase means in terms of income. That seems like a small change. Could it really make much difference? Well, let's do some math and see. $40 is a very common fee for most chiropractors. So let's say you're charging $40 instead of $44.30, or what we might call the Gonstead $5. That means you're losing $4.30 every time you see a patient. Let's say you see 100 patients a day, so that's $430 every day. Let's say you work three days per week, so you're losing $1,290 per week. If you work 50 weeks out of the year, then that would turn into a loss of $64,500 over the course of a year. Did you know the average chiropractor only makes about sixty to 70000 per year? That means you're giving up an entire year's worth of income, and it also means the other chiropractors are seeing a lot of people, and they aren't charging much for it. Cheap fees attract cheap patients. Don't forget that. 
$64,500 is a huge loss in connection with a seemingly insignificant $4.30. The reason we do this exercise is to make the point that every dollar matters because it isn't the loss of $1, but the pattern of losing that same dollar over every transaction that leads to significant loss. I make this point because choosing your fee or its corollary of allowing an insurance company to choose your fee for you can have significant consequences when it comes to paying your bills and ultimately to amassing wealth. One final point in this regard is that our fee is not simply a number we pick, but you need to have skills that match your fee and a fee that matches your skills. This is a concept known as price point, and you must know the proper price point for the community where you work. This can be difficult when you first start because there's a tendency to either grossly underestimate your value or to grossly overestimate your value. This tendency is often dictated by personality, but we must realize the value the community places on what you do may have nothing to do with you. When I first opened, chiropractic was viewed as a commodity and all chiropractors were viewed as equal. With education and results, I separated myself from the pack and my price went up because the perceived value increased. So let's assume that you've done all these things well and now you're starting to amass wealth because this is what I really want to talk about today. The reason Gonstead's $5 now requires a fee of $44.30 is because of inflation. Inflation is the reason that $44.30 was only $41.76 a few months ago. I hope you can see that is rapid inflation and it's a direct result of the money printing that happened over the last year. When Richard Nixon took, off, took us off the gold standard in 1972, the dollar immediately began to lose value, and since then, it's lost 96% of its buying power. That means that $1 today has the same buying power as $0.04 cents in 1972. Inflation is often referred to as the hidden tax because it steals from the poor and gives to the rich. With rapid inflation coming in the future, it's a good idea to constantly check your fees and make sure that you are keeping up with inflation. I recommend using the Gonstead $5 in 1960 to see how much you need to charge and you might need to check it often since you can see how quickly it's starting to go up. That also means that any wealth preservation strategy must include a solid hedge against inflation. Call it inflation insurance. But first, before we go there, let's talk about taxes. Taxes are often referred to as legalized theft. In the years leading up to the American Revolution, there was a global conflict known as the Seven Years' War between the years of 1756 and 1763. This war led directly into the French and Indian War in the Americas. It was during this time that the British sought to expand their, into territory already claimed by the French. The British went all in and managed to win the land for themselves, which is why the majority of Canada speaks English today and not French. Nonetheless, England spent a ton of money to win this conflict, and they felt the American colonists owed it to them to help them recover their losses. As such, they imposed excessive taxes on the colonists. This included taxes on most food items and even a stamp tax on all printed materials. As we all know, the colonists eventually revolted against the crown because they realized that taxes make slaves of all men. This is a very important concept because it was the reason that very few, if any, taxes existed in the U.S. until more recently. Almost every tax that we pay today was enacted in the 20th century. While income tax was first legalized following the Civil War, it only lasted for about a year. It came back following World War II, but the politicians liked the income so much that it never went away. This is the same story for most taxes we pay today. They are introduced as a temporary measure to solve a problem, but then the bloated beast of a government gets drunk on the people's money and it never goes away. This is why we must have a wealth strategy for both legally avoiding taxation and having a hedge against inflation. Perhaps this is a good time to mention that the Biden administration is flooding the economy 
with currency as they continue to print trillions of dollars. Why then, you might ask, would there be any need for any U.S. citizen to pay any taxes, since the government can simply print all the money they need to pay their own bills? Of course, not only do we have to pay taxes, but Joe Biden has promised to raise taxes. Why? Most people can't see this, but it obviously has nothing to do with money, since they control the presses and can print any amount of money they need to pay their bills. It's called modern monetary theory, and it's the belief that as long as the dollar is the reserve currency, then we can print as much money as we want with no negative consequences. The theory says they can print money to pay their debts and inflate away the debt, and nobody will have to pay for any of it. The Austrian economists, however, insist this is not true. There will be consequences, and we're already starting to see some of those consequences now. Have you tried to buy lumber recently? So the reason why we still have to pay taxes is because it has everything to do with power and control. In fact, 13 states recently filed a lawsuit against the Biden administration because they made a law that any state that took money from the $1.9 trillion that they are printing is not allowed to offer any tax breaks to its citizens. Now, why in the world would they want to make a law like that? Don't worry, I'm not political, except to the extent that I hate all politicians and I think they're all trying to steal the people's money. Since you know I like quotes, here's one for you. The best way to destroy capitalism is with taxes, taxes, and more taxes. Do you know who said that? It was Karl Marx. So are politicians trying to destroy our capitalistic economy, or are they just stupid and greedy? Well, let's take a little rabbit trail for a second and explain what's really happening. Imagine that you owned a professional sports team, and your team was the dominant team in the league. Your new coach comes in with a philosophy that it's unfair for one team to dominate all the others, so we're going to intentionally call plays that sabotage our team so the other teams can have a chance to win too. This is basically the philosophy of Joe Biden, and he shares his, this philosophy with Barack Obama, but of course it stands in contrast to Donald Trump. The point here isn't that I'm going to judge one as being better than the other, but the point is that if we're going to develop a useful strategy, then we need to know the rules of the game. For the next three plus years, our coach is going to be calling plays that will allow other teams to have a chance at winning, and that means sabotaging our own efforts to excel. Unfortunately, this will also devalue the purchasing power of the U.S. dollar, and as the reserve currency, that will have a negative effect on the entire world. So let's go back to the previous question. Why would we raise taxes when we can print and inflate our, our way out of our debt? The answer is that taxes exist because they are a tool of power over the people, and they can be used to encourage some behaviors and discourage other behaviors. But that's not all bad, and we can use this knowledge to our benefit. Have you ever heard the saying that what you reward you encourage and what you punish you discourage? Well, taxes work the exact same way. If you do what the government doesn't want you to do, they tax you. But if you do what they do want you to do, you get tax credits. And with enough credits, you can effectively reduce your income to zero, even though you actually have the money. There are a couple of key lessons that I was fortunate enough to learn early on in my career. The first is this principle that taxation is a punishment for doing what the government doesn't want you to do. But the government will reward you for doing what they do want you to do. Or perhaps I should say what they need you to do. So what do they want you to do? Well, what the government wants you to do is whatever helps them to build the economy so they can gain more income from the people who live off of that economy. So, in short, if you do things that build the economy, like buy real estate, start a business, drill oil, the basics of any economy, then you get benefits. On the other hand, if you simply suck off the economy, like work a job, rent a house, and buy consumable products, then you get punished by paying the highest amount of taxes possible. Is that true? It is true. But if you're going to start a business, then you have to run it like a business. The average person makes money, pays taxes, and lives on what's left over. If you're a sole proprietor, then that's how your taxes are calculated as well. 
If, however, you have a corporation, then your corporation will make money and spend money and only pay taxes on what's left over. Some people might think this is unfair, but here's what you have to remember. What you reward, you encourage, and what you punish, you discourage. Taxation is always a punishment for certain behaviors. That's why cigarettes and alcohol have a higher tax associated with them. Developing a tax strategy based on these principles is key to protecting your financial future. That's why I believe that a good CPA is an essential member of any wealth management team. If you're doing your own taxes, you're definitely paying too much in taxes because those programs do not give you the opportunity to take advantage of all the benefits in the tax code, and neither do the franchise tax companies either. Once we get the government's hand out of our pocket, we need to have a strategy for wealth maintenance. Legally reducing our tax burden is only half the game. The government can then throw inflation our way, which they're right in the middle of doing, and that will affect everyone equally unless you have a way of getting your wealth outside the system. So let's talk about inflation and how we avoid it. Investopedia, one of my favorite websites, defines inflation as a decrease in purchasing power over time. Inflation is always a function of supply and demand. When more dollars enter the market to compete for the same products, it increases the demand without a subsequent increase in supply, resulting in higher prices. That's why Gonstead's $5 is now our $41.76, or as of today, $43.30. The more money we print, the higher prices go. Did you know that 40% of all U.S. dollars in circulation today were printed in the last 12 months? Inflation is coming. I know this might sound weird, but it's probably the number one driver for the rise in the stock market as well. Most businesses are massively overvalued because instead of using profits to build their businesses, they're using it to buy Bitcoin. Elon Musk himself said he would never buy his own stock because it was so overvalued. Why is it overvalued? Because they raised capital, invested heavily in Bitcoin, and are sitting on a huge stockpile of cash, but they aren't actually producing a profit. See the problem? We'll talk more about cryptocurrency here in a second. Here's the important thing to know. Our government is currently responsible for half of our GDP. Remember, the government doesn't create anything, so every government dollar acquired or spent is a dollar it took from one of its citizens. That means the only way to maintain current GDP is through taxation. Just think about that for a second. During the COVID lockdowns, the billionaires in the U.S. increased their collective wealth by $900 billion, while 22 million Americans lost their jobs, can't pay their mortgages, and are left begging for a government handout, which is really just getting some of their tax money or some of someone else's tax money back. How's that for wealth redistribution? As we mentioned before, considering all the money they're stealing through printing and inflation, there's no reason to even collect taxes, but of course they will. If you question the evil intention behind money printing, then you should know about something called the Cantillon Effect, or some people call it the Cantillon Effect. Richard Cantillon was an Irish economist of French descent. He wrote about how printing enthusiasts will often proclaim the virtue of money printing as a way to help the poor. He then went on to highlight that their preferred methods, including rent control, planning restrictions, and minimum wage laws, always have the effect of being most damaging to the poor people they are said to benefit. Should we be surprised then that money printing also has the most damaging effect on the same group of people as it decreases income and destroys savings? Another feature of the Cantillon effect is that those who benefit most from money printing are those who are closest to the money. In other words, it's the politicians who are pushing for these things that know it'll transfer your wealth to them personally. Now, is there any surprise that there was so much eagerness to shove through a massive stimulus bill? As Cantillon points out, they say they want to decrease the wealth gap, but in reality, they grow the gap as they transfer all the wealth from the pockets of the middle class and the poor into their own pockets. Oh yeah, 
I failed to mention something really important. Richard Cantillion's book was published in 1755. 1755. So why are we as a society still falling for this trick? Well, it shouldn't surprise you that his work is mysteriously absent from any economics class offered at any school in America. I'm not going to say it's a conspiracy, but if you were a magician attempting to pull off an illusion, would you really teach the audience how to perform the illusion before you attempt it yourself? I hope the point is clear that with 40% of all circulating U.S. dollars having been printed in the last year and $9 trillion having been injected in the economy just since September, inflation is on the horizon. Further evidence of this is the fact that the Fed intends to print a lot more $50 bills for the coming year. Well, of course, if Gonstead's $5 is now $44.30 with more inflation on the horizon, then it makes sense we would need as many $50 bills as we once needed $5 bills. Personally, in light of this info, I would strongly consider making my adjustment price $50 to stay ahead of inflation, but I'm not practicing, so you have to decide for yourself if that's something your market can bear. Now let's talk about how we shield our wealth from these disastrous forces. The first one, which you're probably familiar with, is cryptocurrency, or you probably know it as Bitcoin. Bitcoin is just one form of cryptocurrency, but its name has become synonymous with cryptocurrency. So people often say Bitcoin when they really mean crypto. Bitcoin is a type of crypto, and cryptocurrency is based on blockchain technology. Another term you should learn is DeFi. This stands for Decentralized Finance. The Federal Reserve was created in 1913. In less than 20 years, they triggered the Great Depression. In 1972, Nixon took us off the gold standard so the Fed could print as much money as they want. Since then, they have devalued $1 down to $0.04. Now, in 2021, people see cryptocurrency as an opportunity to get out of this rigged system and into one that's based on scarcity or limited resources, like being back on the gold standard. While I do own Bitcoin, I did invest with one of the smaller cryptos, and my investment has grown almost seven times in just three months, and it's still just getting started. Unfortunately, the name Bitcoin has become synonymous with cryptocurrency, like the Kleenex of crypto. So I'll try not to use it that way and only say Bitcoin when I mean Bitcoin specifically and crypto when I mean the entire asset class. Now, some people have proclaimed Bitcoin to be digital gold, but that's not true. Crypto isn't digital gold. Bitcoin isn't any more digital gold than gold is physical Bitcoin. Instead, I like to refer to Bitcoin as millennial gold. The reason for this is because millennials like the ease and cheapness with which they can buy Bitcoin, including the ability to buy partial Bitcoin, like the way Robinhood allowed the purchase of partial stocks. These are things that matter to millennials and their limited resources. What Bitcoin and gold have in common is that they're both outside the system. Because they're both set on finite resources, they are unaffected by inflation, except to the extent that it causes their value to go up. Except that, in reality, it doesn't cause them to gain value, but they really are only gaining value by perspective as they maintain value in contrast to a declining value of the dollar or any other fiat currency for that matter. As I've said, I do have investments in crypto, but cryptos are really untested, so we don't know for sure if they'll hold up to inflation. For that reason, my rule is that I do not invest more than I'm comfortable with losing. If all my cryptos went belly up, it, it wouldn't keep us from paying our bills or putting food in our mouths. I recommend you take the same approach. One final thing I want to say about crypto is that I do believe that the future is in crypto, or more accurately, in blockchain technology. There are crypto companies who have built their platform with the vision of combining medical records and payments into one application. Instead of maintaining patient records as the doctor, the patient will have their own medical records, and when you update them, it triggers the appropriate financial transaction so you're paid immediately. We're still pretty far from that. If we just compare the top two cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin and Ethereum, then we immediately see that these two cryptos are built for entirely different purposes. 
Bitcoin is a store of value for value transfer between me and you. Ethereum is a decentralized world supercomputer capable of all kinds of things. In fact, Ethereum is devalued right now because they are currently updating the system to a 2.0, if you will. This is akin to changing the engine in a car or airplane while it's in motion. It's no small task, but this has kept Ethereum undervalued, but it should shoot up as soon as the process is complete. I say this merely to demonstrate the difference between the two. With any crypto you might invest in, you must know what they do and how they work to make an intelligent decision. The final point on this topic is to say at this point, all cryptos are speculative. While they do aspire to become an alternative form of currency, none have achieved that level yet, and the race to the top has created a, a bubble similar to the dot-com bubble. Certainly, they won't all make it, but some of them will. The fact that Bitcoin is often called digital gold should be a clear indication that what you really want is gold. Now I have a bunch of things to say about gold, so hear me out on this one. First, gold is not seen as an income creation asset. Gold is seen as wealth insurance. That's because its price changes only occur relative to the real economy. It's like the lighthouse. As the ship is moving, it looks like the lighthouse is moving if you're on the ship, but really the lighthouse is holding still and it's your, it's your position on the ship that's changing. Therefore, if gold shot up to $10,000 per ounce, it isn't because the gold suddenly gained value but it's actually a sign that the economy is collapsing relative to the steady lighthouse of gold. Gold, however, is expensive. One ounce is the least you can buy, and right now the spot price plus the premium means you'll be paying at least $1,800 for one ounce, and probably more. If that's too rich for your blood, then I recommend the alternative resource of silver. Silver is more volatile than gold, but it's still a great resource. One ounce of silver with spot price plus premium should cost you about $30. The 10 ounce bars are a reasonable investment, and it's not impossible to even buy 100 ounce silver bars. Silver has a little different story. JP Morgan just got fined $900 million for artificially suppressing the price of silver so they could buy a ton of it at basement prices. You probably didn't hear about that on the news. Surprise, surprise. That should give you an idea of how valuable it really is. This suppression is about to allow silver to break loose, which means it could shoot up to $100 per ounce in no time and possibly even higher. Again, that's speculation, but Silver is definitely undervalued, and the Green New Deal is only going to increase the demand on silver. All signs point to a price increase. The fact that silver is undervalued and it's a hedge against inflation makes it an excellent investment for almost anyone. Unlike Bitcoin, when we talk about metals, be it gold, silver, platinum, or palladium, we have to talk about storage. Since it is a physical item, it must be kept somewhere. So that brings us to the vulnerability of precious metals. They can be stolen or confiscated when it's stolen by the government. For this reason, most wealthy people store theirs in another country. I'm not going to say too much about this, but if I owned any gold, I would store it offshore, and the price is far more reasonable than you might think. So I have to be honest with you, buying gold and silver is not a fun investment. I've sat and I've watched my cryptocurrency gain value as I sit there, but metals are not like that. In fact, my metals are something that I hope I will never need to bail me out, because that would mean the US economy has completely collapsed. Unfortunately. I also think the chances of that happening in the next four years are higher than they've ever been. The U.S. is on a course for total economic implosion, as we now have what economists are calling the everything bubble. If the U.S. economy collapses, we will take the rest of the world with us. Unfortunately, too many people vote with their emotions instead of their brains. As chiropractors, we aren't interested in becoming money people. I know I wasn't. But it only took a few years of working like a dog to watch my money disappear before I realized there had to be a better way. In America, everyone wants to live like they're rich, especially the ones who aren't. And that usually means spending everything they have to maintain appearances and never investing in their future. There are a ton of wealth building strategies that invest in the future and decrease your tax liability. 
Believe it or not, the government rewards you for investing in the future, and they punish you for spending on the now instead. Obviously, this principle is not absolute, but it's a good guiding principle. We also shouldn't go without noticing that the current administration has different values than any other administration, so they will certainly choose to reward and punish different things. So it would be good to look out for those things and plan for them as, they, as early as possible. There's another asset class, and that's real estate. Real estate is the most complicated and risky of all the asset classes. For that reason, I don't have time to tell you all the real estate strategies I know, but I do want to tell you that this is where you find the best tax benefits. The other asset is paper assets like stocks and bonds. I would be careful when it comes to this market right now. The stock market is at an all-time high, and it's propped up by massive stimulus spending. That means it really has nowhere to go but down. Once again, if this is an area you're interested in, make sure you educate yourself because stocks can always go down too. In Matthew Amon's book, he talked about Dr. Gonstead's vision for the Cayman Islands. I'm impressed that Dr. Gonstead chose the Cayman Islands for his grand vision. The Cayman Islands have no taxes and they have no obligation to report to any other nation. That's why it's such a highly valued tax haven. When I think what he did, first off, his vision was to create a potential real estate investment, which is always rewarded with tax benefits. It's a tax haven. It's outside the U.S. It's beautiful. And he was going to turn it into a teaching capital for all to visit. It really was a beautiful idea, but we should learn from it that we need to be wise with our money. And even a grand idea such as this ultimately cost Gonstead more than it gained him. That's why this lesson comes with a warning, because you don't want to lose your money. You want to do your research and you want to start slowly. As I mentioned at the beginning, when I was first starting out in practice, I was still building my office and a man came to deliver my x-ray machine. We talked about what it was, why I needed it, and ultimately about Gonstead. He decided he wanted to be a patient. So my first patient ever lived an hour and a half from my office, but he made deliveries to town on Tuesdays and that's when he came in. After a few weeks, he was doing much better. So he brought me a book. It was Robert Kiyosaki's book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Now I've never seen a book I wouldn't read, so I of course read it. That book changed everything for me and helped me to dump conventional wisdom in favor of what actually works. To this day, I still listen to the Rich Dad radio show. More recently, my wife got me listening to George Gammon. If you want to know how the economy works, you can check out his videos on YouTube. He also has the Rebel Capitalist Show, also on YouTube, where you can learn from the experts. His shows take everything we've discussed here today and kicks it up to a whole other level. From there, you can learn who the industry leaders are and begin getting an education in the comfort of your own home. Well, I hope you found this to be beneficial, and I hope it got you to start thinking about these things. I feel like I've only barely scratched the surface of these topics, but it's my intention to bring in some of my experts on this podcast to help you learn more about how to build and preserve your wealth. It's okay to make money, but even more than that, it's okay to have a plan for how you're going to keep your money. It's also okay, and I would say necessary, to realize that there are other people out there who don't know you, but they're more than happy to take your money if you aren't willing to put in the effort to learn how to play their game. I never wanted to learn to play the game, but I knew I had to be smarter or else I was just working for them and not for myself. That's my motivation for sharing this with you today. I don't want anyone to be trapped, and I also don't want anyone to lose what they have. I know everyone works hard, and you deserve to keep what you've earned. So as always, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time.